Do you enjoy listening to On the Ear but wish you could earn ASHA CEUs for it? Start today. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of audio courses on demand with an average of 19 new audio courses released each month. And here's the best part. Each episode earns you ASHA continuing ed credits. Oh, no, wait. This is the best part. As a listener of On the Ear, you can receive $20 off an annual subscription when you use code EAR21. Just head to SpeechTherapyPD.com to sign up and use code EAR21, E-A-R-2-1, for $20 off your annual subscription. You're listening to On the Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Our understanding of the listening needs of children with hearing loss has drastically evolved over the past decade thanks to the collaborative efforts of clinicians and researchers like the Outcomes of Children with Hearing Loss Study. This multidisciplinary team of professionals from the University of Iowa, Boys Town National Research Hospital, and the University of North Carolina in the fields of audiology, speech language, psychology, linguistics, biostatistics, they all focused on examining the impact of newborn hearing screening, early intervention, and advances in hearing technology on a wide range of developmental outcomes for children who are hard of hearing. Their research continues, but has shifted and evolved itself, and today's guest is going to provide a close-up look at their groundbreaking results. Dr. Ryan McCreary is the Vice President of Research at Boystown National Research Hospital in Omaha, Nebraska, where he provides strategic leadership to the 42 laboratories across research groups in audiology, language, neuroscience, and behavioral psychology. In his own laboratory within the Center for Hearing Research, Ryan studies how to optimize hearing aid fitting for infants and young children who are hard of hearing. Ryan received the 2013 Early Career Contributions to Research Award from ASHA and received recognition as an ASHA Fellow in 2020. He gave the 2021 Marion Down lecture in pediatric audiology for the American Academy of Audiology. Ryan, I gotta say, you're one of my audiology heroes. It's so cool to have you on the podcast. The work y'all are doing is so important and directly impacts my clinical practice regularly. And the resources on your website are so awesome. So I can't thank you enough for joining me. Well, thank you, Dakota. This is fantastic. I'm a big fan of the podcast as well. And so it's really a huge honor for me to be here and to have the opportunity to talk about our results with you. Were you saying that the work has an impact that on you as a clinician is probably one of the biggest compliments that we can receive. Yeah, well, you listening is about the biggest compliment I can receive. So, right back at you. Thank you so much. Okay, so just to help me, I want to kind of get into your backstory a little bit too, because I think I don't have the entire backstory, but I'm pretty sure you started clinically and now you're in this like major research role. And I'm so curious about that. But before I do, so there's the OCHL, the Outcomes of Children with Hearing Loss, and now there's also the OCACHH. The comp- <laughs> Which study are you guys on now? Because I know you've got a lot of teams working together. You have a lot of subjects going on here. What's the best way to describe what you're currently working on? So the 
study that most people are familiar with that I was involved in is the Outcomes of Children with Hearing Loss study that you mentioned at the sort of beginning of the podcast. And that was a study that was led by Mary Pat Moeller and Bruce Tomlin and uh, Melody Harrison. And those sort of amazing scientists started that project in 2009 with the goal of recruiting a large sample of kids who are deaf and hard of hearing, particularly kids who wore hearing aids to look at their language outcomes. And in the process of that, I got involved. I had just finished my PhD and they were interested in bringing someone onto the team who had some expertise in hearing aids. And so I got involved in the OCHL project sort of as a junior investigator. But when we went back to the NIH to try to extend the project for another five years, NIH said, yeah, we'll let you do that, but we're going to hold you to a much smaller budget limit than you had the first time, which is completely reasonable because the original budget was part of a special pot of money that the NIH had. So we had to get really creative. And one of the things they wanted us to do was to break apart the speech and language and hearing research. And we had Mary Pat Moeller and Bruce as the PIs of the Speech, Language, and Academic Grant. And that's the OSATCH grant or Outcomes of School-Aged Children Who Are Hard of Hearing that you mentioned. And then the audiology sort of complement to that grant was called the Complex Listening Skills in School-Aged Hard of Hearing Children. So we just call that one Complex Listening. Got so it. Got we, it. We had two grants that ended in 2019. And since then, I've renewed the complex listening grant. And then we have another project that I'm excited to talk with you about called Fast Track, which is focused on children with mild bilateral hearing loss specifically. That's that's great. So that that's a really helpful picture because I know I see some of the wording on the website refers to things in the past tense, but I still see you all as a group, you know, publishing studies. So I'm like, are they using data that's been collected over time or are they working on something totally new? So that's really helpful. And I'm really excited to talk about that too. I've got a few mild bilateral kids on my caseload. I'm, I'm curious what kind of information you've got for us there. So before we get into that though, how about you tell us a little bit about how you got into more of a research role and what was your primary interest in hearing aids before that? So I started out as a pediatric audiologist. So I did my master's in audiology at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And I had considered going straight through to finish my PhD right after my master's. And at the time, I just didn't feel like I was ready to get a PhD. And every one of my professors said, don't go and get a job or you'll never come back for your PhD. And I thought, well, if that's the case, I'll know that that's the right thing to do. And, and I was a clinical audiologist for 10 years. But during that time, I had the opportunity to work with Pat Stomakowitz. And Pat was the director of audiology at Boys Town. And she was my boss when I was a pediatric audiologist in the clinic. And we would have conversations about research because Pat had her own funding. And she studied how to optimize hearing aid fitting for kids with hearing loss. And at the time, she was one of the only people that was funded by the National Institutes of Health to do pediatric hearing aid research. And so as I would ask Pat questions, she would say to me, you should go back and get a PhD. And I was like, I've heard this before for my professors in my master's program. And so Pat was really the catalyst to encourage me. And I started out just working as a research audiologist in Pat's lab. But then I got hooked on research and really became very interested in pediatric amplification and realized 
how many interesting questions there were that we just didn't have answers to. So I was able to do my PhD in Pat's lab through the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And my PhD is actually in human sciences because of the courses that I took in sort of experimental psychology and statistics. And it's been a great experience because I have the audiology background, but I also got a really diverse background in other topics when I did my PhD. And so I joined Boystown as a scientist in 2011 and started my own laboratory and then started writing my own grants. And then Pat retired from her position as director of audiology and they were looking for a new director of audiology. And I thought, well, I'll put my hat in the ring, even though I'm kind of new. And then I became director of audiology. And then the same thing happened with the director of research. I I had established a lab and had written some grants and they had been looking for a director of research. And I thought it would be a good time for me to sort of take the next step and do something a little bit different because the audiology program at Boystown is, is amazing and has great leadership. And I was really ready to try something a little bit different. So that's how I ended up in this director of research role. But my heart is still in the audiology department. I still bother our audiologists all the time with questions about how things are impacting them or or what ideas they have. So it's a great place to be because I have a role over research, but I also still get to interact with my colleagues in audiology, which I love. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's crazy. I mean, you, I know we're going to talk about fast track later, but it sounds like you've got like a career fast track. You've just jumped up a lot of places, but it's clear that your, your work is really impactful. I know just in that short amount of time, some of the, the data that's come out from the studies you all have published has just like drastically changed clinical practice for pediatric amplification and just been really, really important. So I'm, I'm curious, I mean, I know you kind of came into the project a little bit after it was established, but if you have any insights into how the OCHL study was kind of established, where those initial research questions came from, and maybe, you know, like how those questions evolved a bit over time. Yeah. So there's a really interesting supplement to the journal Ear and Hearing that, co- that came out in, I think, 2006 or 2007. But it was a consensus conference that was hosted by the National Institutes of Health and the National Institutes on Deafness and Communication Disorders that funds a lot of research in hearing and speech and language. And it involved people like Mary Pat Moeller and Bruce Tomblin, who eventually would lead the OCHL study. But it also included some really amazing people like Susan Jerger, who everyone knows Susan Jerger's husband, Jim, as sort of the godfather of audiology. But Susan Jerger will always hold a special place in my heart because she has contributed substantially to the field of pediatric audiology throughout her career. And she published some interesting work there. And and those papers that came out of that consensus statement from that special issue of ear and hearing really laid the groundwork for the OCHL study. And in fact, if you read the, the, those consensus documents, and then you go and read the supplement that describes the results from ear and hearing from the OCHL project from 2015, you'll see that there's a lot of parallels there that was really inspired by that consensus conference and that that really had a huge impact on, on the development of the project. And it started out really focused on the speech and language outcomes for these kids because that was a big goal of the conference. But fortunately, there were a lot of people who were involved in the project early on, like Pat Rausch from the University of North Carolina and 
Melody Harrison from UNC, as well as Pat Stamakowitz, Ruth Bentler, Lenore Holty, all of these amazing pediatric audiologists who really pushed for looking at that relationship between amplification and language outcomes. So not just looking at sort of older questions like if you fit the child early, do they have a better outcome? And and those are really interesting questions before newborn hearing screening was fully implemented. But now that such a large percentage of kids are identified through newborn hearing screening, we, we really need to know and understand what are the factors that create that individual variability for kids that were identified very early. And that was sort of the wonderful foresight. So even though that was sort of established before I was in the meeting and on the team, it was very well set up by those people who were part of the project. And I, they did my career such a huge favor because I now have the opportunity to look at this wonderful data set that includes details about amplification that were never available in previous studies. Wow. Yeah. So I, from what I understand, it's, it's just the way you said it, it's picking apart some of those factors because there, even though we did have, you know, a dramatic increase in early identification in newborns, there's, there was still a lot of variability in speech and language outcomes in children with hearing loss who, you know, were hearing aids. And so I guess those were the questions, right? Is like picking apart which factors had the biggest impacts. So as, as that study progressed, was there anything that, you know, looking back now to you was really surprising or really, I mean, I know a lot of the information and a lot of the published, you know, research is really interesting, but, you know, anything that really sticks out to you or like a take-home message you like to give to people? Yeah. So this is going to sound weird because of my area of interest in my own research, but I guess I had always underestimated the impact of the hearing aids on the outcome. I view the early intervention process for children who are deaf and hard of hearing as this very comprehensive sort of list of factors. So things like how early they get into intervention, what type of intervention that they have, the family systems dynamics. There's all kinds of awesome research going on out there into all these factors. And I guess even though I was an audiologist and I fit hearing aids on infants and young children and saw the huge benefit about that and counseled families about how important it was for them to use their hearing aids. I guess I had always downplayed. I always viewed the hearing aid as like a little piece of that puzzle. But what we're finding is that along with the language environment that the child experiences, which is obviously extremely important, that that hearing aid use and how well the hearing aids are fitted is such a huge part of the outcomes. And that to me, the the relationship wasn't surprising. I always viewed it as part of it. But what was surprising was just how dominant that has been. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I know a lot of a lot of your research as well is in, is focused on audibility as a big factor in terms of when it comes to the fitting, you know, focusing on that audibility and incorporating the speech intelligibility index a bit more. What led you to look into that as a, a factor of the hearing aid fitting or I, I, you know what I mean? Like kind of what led you down that road to explore those questions a little bit more deeply? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think the first component of that was that my mentor, Pat Stomakowitz, who was involved in the development of the study, even her research around 2000, 2001 was really focused on this concept that if spoken language is the goal for a specific child who's deaf or hard of hearing, that children are only going to develop sounds that they can hear. 
And so she and Mary Pat Moeller did some research studies where they looked at children who were early identified with hearing loss. And what was interesting was they did better than the children who were later identified, obviously, but they were still falling behind their peers with normal hearing in terms of specific types of speech sounds. And when they looked specifically at what speech sounds the kids were missing in their phonetic inventory, it was fricative sounds. And sure enough, they looked at the fact that the hearing aids didn't have the bandwidth to encode those S and SH and F and B sounds. And so it wasn't surprising that these kids weren't developing these sounds because they couldn't hear them. So that was really the first sort of step into audibility that I think the field had. And I was obviously heavily influenced by the research of those two wonderful people. Where we started to incorporate the speech intelligibility index was when we started to notice that we were seeing kids that had sort of the same audiogram, but they were giving us really different outcomes. And you hear that from pediatric audiologists like all the time. You, yeah. you, know, you say that to a group of pediatric audiologists and they're like, yeah, that's my life. Um, <laughs> but we were thinking, well, what's the factor here that's predicting it? And and we found that the audibility through the hearing aids is a really potent predictor of language development and specific areas of language like morphosyntactic development, where you need to have those sort of fine grained cues to learn those morpheme endings to words and things. And so it's just sort of grown from there with each sort of different research question in each experiment. And so it's, you know, people get tired of me talking about audibility, but it's just such a huge component of the process. And the other beautiful thing about it is that it's something that we as pediatric audiologists can influence. Like, so the audibility is really determined by the degree of hearing loss, which there's nothing that we can do about. And how well we fit the hearing aid, which is absolutely something that's within our control. And there's something very appealing to me about the idea that a pediatric audiologist is having this amazing and profound impact on the language development of these kids by following best practices and doing hearing aid verification. And, and that's been really something that's driven me to, to continue to explore audibility. Yeah, that's that's really cool, and I I like that picture a lot of the the difference between the two of what's in our control and what's out of our control. And I I also love it. To, I mean, I don't, I don't get tired of listening to talk about audibility. I also love it just because like it's like a numerical value. It's like when you hear someone say like, oh, I've got a fifty percent hearing loss, and audiologists all like groan. They're like, what are you talking about? But with SII, like, no, there is a number. Like, I can look at this number and compare it to another number. It's really helpful in that way. It's not always like a perfect picture, but I, I do appreciate how some of the research that you guys are doing is giving us a little bit more of like concrete, objective comparisons between things where historically it's felt like a little bit more up in the air, always on a case by case basis. So I do appreciate that research for sure. Maybe this is just sort of like a question about big longitudinal studies in general, which I have very little experience with. But when it comes to like how these research questions change as as you guys get more information, is that like what leads you all to start a new study with a new research question that's all enveloped within one you know, multi-center study. I know this is like a really like, (laughs) that was a really long, complicated way to ask that question. Do do you get what I'm asking there? Yeah, it's a great question. And I would say the process usually begins long before we plan to implement the study. And we try to be really transparent 
from the beginning about our goals and expectations for the study, because as you may know from, you know, just being a consumer of science and and your interest in research, you know, there's a big emphasis right now on open and transparent research. And so when we start a research study, we really try our best to set up our expectations and our hypotheses ahead of time at a big picture level meaning that we were defining things and we've even started to pre-register some of our studies where we publish the method that we're going to use ahead of time so that people can go back when we publish the actual work and say, yes, they did what they said they were going to do. And there's no sort of statistical malfeasance here or that they're not trying to game the statistics to get a specific outcome. But with that being said, there's a lot of interesting questions that just arise sort of opportunistically. And so you can't possibly plan out every interesting thing that comes up. And we found relationships with, you know, for example, that that relationship that I mentioned between audibility and children's morphosyntactic ability, that was not a planned part of the original analysis. And looking back, it's like, well, we should have put that in the grant. But <laughs> it, you just you don't necessarily know when you're designing the study or designing the grant, what your opportunities are going to be. And so I think, you know, we try to define it as well as we can so that we have a good plan and we're getting good data. But I think some of these questions that have come up have really come up out of opportunities or conversations with clinicians about, you know, or questions from clinicians. If we go to a meeting and present, we get awesome questions. And sometimes those questions inspire us to go and look at something that we hadn't even thought of. And so, you know, we try to keep it structured, but you also don't want to close the door on potential sort of what we call exploratory experiments that weren't part of the original plan, but are very interesting and often have really important clinical implications. That's great. That's a really helpful insight into that process. I'm also curious how you all just like, I mean, this, this is probably something that researchers just deal with all the time, but as a clinician, I never have to think about just like managing data across sites, across the country and different time zones. Like, do y'all just have a Google doc that you keep going? Or I'm guessing there's probably people who are hired to manage your data, but I'm just curious how that communication is maintained across, you know, such a wide distance. That's a really awesome question and a good insight because it is so challenging when you're doing a multi-center study. So it starts really with training the people who are collecting the data. And fortunately, in our multi-center studies, we have amazing audiologists and speech-language pathologists who help us to collect the data. And the fidelity of their efforts is so strong. I mean, and they have monthly meetings where they talk about challenges to the data collection process. So these are just such dedicated, amazing people. And it really starts with the fidelity of the data collection. And then we do currently sort of a a cloud-based data approach using a system that was developed at Vanderbilt called REDCap. And REDCap allows you to build sort of data entry forms that really constrain the values that can be entered so that you know that what you're getting is plausible. And and, um, and there's also ways to sort of do data reliability. So the examiners at each site, in addition to just being fantastic clinicians, also then either pass along to a research assistant or themselves enter the data into REDCap, 
which then goes through some quality checks to make sure that everything, like you're saying, with timing and the appointments lines up. And it's a really nice system because if you're doing a longitudinal study, and let's say you want to see a child back in a year, you can create additional appointment reminder essentially in REDCap that will tell you, yeah, you need to bring this group of kids back because you said you were going to. So it's a really great way to manage a longitudinal study because it's interesting, but at least at the stage that we're in right now, the data collection and data entry is so much more critical than the, I mean, the experimental design is important, but once that's set into motion, it's really about the data collection and the data management. And we, and you're, you're absolutely right. We have amazing people whose job is entirely to help us manage the data. And that's such an important role. Yeah. I can't imagine with the, all of the different outcomes you guys are measuring across so many different professionals, like it's gotta be a lot and a lot of different lingo and different kinds of examinations and scores. I just cannot imagine the amount of data, but I'm, as a researcher, I'm sure it's, you're like, Hey, it's, it's all opportunity of, you know, numbers to look at and consider. So as, as you all transitioned, this is out of curiosity from the OCHL study to the OSAT, as you transition from those two, is it the same pool of subjects who are just growing up into school age? Or did you all find a new set of subjects to begin this kind of stage of the research? Just curious how that process changed over time. Yeah, so we use kind of both strategies in both complex listening and OSATCH, where we have this wonderful group of kids that participated in our studies that were so well characterized in terms of their early auditory experience and their intervention. And so we've absolutely continued to follow some of those kids. And my colleague, Beth Walker at the University of Iowa currently is doing a study on language and literacy outcomes for these kids. And some of the children that she's following in her literacy study are teenagers that started out in the study as young children. And so we've, we've got, you know, almost over a decade of data on some of these kids, but there's also a challenge when you have a longitudinal cohort that you've been following for as long as we've been following these kids and that the numbers sort of dwindle over time. And so in our more recent grants, what we've tried to do is incorporate cross-sectional questions and longitudinal questions so that if we get new volunteers to participate in the research, we can incorporate them into the experiments as well. But then we've also got this beautiful longitudinal cohort. And and we tried to do both because one of the things that we learned early in the OCHL study was that we, the longitudinal questions are very interesting and great. But if you do a longitudinal study and you don't plan any interim cross-sectional analyses, you don't have any research papers published at the end of the grant. Oh, gotcha. And NIH says, that's bad. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, you can't just save it all for the end and you're not going to get the grant renewed. So in our subsequent grants, we've really tried to include both cross-sectional and longitudinal analyses to allow for those continuing subjects, but also to give opportunities for other children and families to participate in the study because it's it's become quite a the families that participate love it and they, you know, they're so dedicated to this work. It's, it's just awesome. 
Yeah, it's cool that you're just with them through their life. I don't know if you've seen the movie Boyhood, but it's like a yeah a movie that you know filmed him a few years at a time over the course of his life, and you guys get to see that. It's, I mean, it's similar to what a clinician has that relationship with a patient as a pediatric audiologist. If you're there at diagnosis and you can follow them all the way through when they age out, it's just cool to see that from a research perspective too. And I'm sure because there's so many professionals involved, from you know some of the researchers I've worked with, a lot of times it's like a day long thing for this participant where they come in and they see audiology and they see all these other people for the data collection. And it's like, you know, going to camp for the day and they just, you guys build a lot of relationships, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we've known, I mean, you really have gone through these families' lives and clinicians experience the same thing. I remember towards the end of my tenure as a clinician, I was getting invited to high school graduations and wow, when you follow kids, for a long time, you get to know them, you get to be part of the family. And I have, I work with audiologists who've worked for 30 or 40 years and get invited to weddings and then see, you know, and, and the OCHL group is a lot like that too, where we, we, we know those families and they just, they're our biggest resource and have really made the study successful because without them, we wouldn't be able to do any of the work. Gotcha. That's awesome. That's such a cool part of your job. I'm sure. I'm also curious, so I know the the OCHL study, some of the big things you're looking at are those factors that are impacting speech and language outcomes when it comes to, you know, children who are deaf and hard of hearing. But I'm curious how, I don't know as much about the OSACH study and the complex listening study. So what are specifically those two looking at? So that's a great question. We, it has to do with the sort of ages of the children that were in those two studies. So obviously with the OCHL study, we were starting out with infants in many cases. And we used an accelerated longitudinal design so that at at the beginning of the study, we didn't just recruit babies. We recruited kids across a range of ages from six months of age to six years because we knew that we only had five years of funding. And so we wanted to characterize a much broader range. And so we followed all those kids and And what we found at the end of OCHL was that we were really interested to see how these kids were doing in school. And so OSATCH really focused on things like reading and writing and literacy specifically and how language abilities sort of set the table for those important academic skills. Whereas complex listening really focused more on classroom acoustics listening and noise and reverberation. So school age listening activities that we really didn't have a lot of information about. I mean, I know a lot of audiologists will appreciate that reverberation is generally not a positive factor for classroom listening, but there have been so few studies of how amplification affects listening and reverberation, despite the fact that nearly all of the kids that we follow in the clinic or in our research studies have to listen to noise and reverberation. So we really changed the focus from like early childhood language to more academically based outcomes for both audiology and the speech and language group, as well as the psychology group. So it, it was like the studies grew up with the kids. That's awesome. That's really awesome. And what a cool way to, to, to conduct the study too, you know, just to have that ongoing relationship. Are you all also providing interventions or is this purely like we're checking in, you know, either once a year or a few times a year? And then is it also looking at like intervention outcomes kind of a thing? I know there are some studies that do that as well. Yeah. So that's a great point because we, as part of the study, 
tried really hard not to provide intervention. So we would document the intervention that the children were receiving. But the children that we followed weren't just patients at Boys Town or the University of Iowa or the University of North Carolina. They were recruited from 17 U.S. states, and they were seen by a wide range of audiologists and early intervention providers. And one of the challenges with that is that we saw a lot of children in the study whose hearing aids were poorly fitted. And we had a real ethical concern about that because we didn't feel good about letting kids walk around with amplification that was poorly fitted. But by the same token, if we had fixed all the poorly fitted hearing aids that came through the clinic, that really wasn't within the purview of our role as researchers to, to sort of modify their intervention, and it would have changed the study. And that's not what we set out to do. But as a pediatric audiologist, I was having heartburn seeing some of these kids walk into the, to the research study visit with such poorly fitted hearing aids. And so we kind of came up with a compromise where we weren't going to change their intervention, but if we saw a child whose hearing aid was poorly fitted, we would send the audiologist a letter and the parents a letter and say, hey, we saw them for research and their hearing aids are not well fitted. Unfortunately, the situation that created the poor fitting in the first place meant that oftentimes those professionals wouldn't modify the hearing even when we notified them about it. So it, it was a challenging situation, but wow, we, yeah. we definitely did not want to provide intervention because that's not what we set out to do in the study. And that wasn't what our research questions were, but it was the clinician part of me was was often very distraught at what we were seeing. But now we're trying to use that information to, to show the audiologists that the kids who were well-fitted had the best outcomes. And so the work that we do is so important for that. Yes, yes. That's, I mean, that's crazy. I'm really glad that you shared that. I mean, that's that's a really helpful insight in, into kind of the research process because I can't imagine not <laughs> fixing any problem that arises, but you're totally right. Like that's not how research works. We'd never be able to answer questions if it was just constantly intervening. But yeah, I can't imagine <laughs> having to navigate that as a clinician who has seen so many patients before. And also, you know, you're doing research that's looking at the impacts and you're seeing the impacts in a way that you know how bad badly they need this. That's, I mean, that's got to be so hard. Actually, that's a pretty good question. So again, the, the, the team, I, I, mean, I guess it's a multidisciplinary group or team, the project has put out so much research. I'm just curious. I mean, this is, this is usually a part of most people who go through audiology training is understanding research methods and how to integrate research into your clinical practice. But do you have, I know you do a lot of presentations for audiologists like all over the world. So I'm curious, do you ever get questions about like, Hey, this is a great study. I think this information is awesome. Like, how do I integrate this into what I'm doing right now? And if you get a question like that, what do you say to that clinician? Well, I think one of the things that we're really trying to do, and I mean, I would love feedback from clinicians on how we can do this better, because to me, it's where the rubber really meets the road is, you know, what we try to do. And, and again, the clinicians would be the ones to have to tell us if we're successful, but we really try to think about the clinical process and how the factors that we are identifying fit into that clinical process. And there's lots and lots of examples of, of that related to the hearing aid verification or, you know, I know some of my colleagues who are speech language pathologists will often talk about the strategies that are best for sort of optimizing language intervention for families and, and things like that. But it's it can be really hard when you're sitting there from the research side of things and so we just really try to listen to what the clinicians are telling us and 
instead of trying to go and say, well, this is what we found and this is what you need to do, talking with them about, well, if if you were going to increase hearing aid use in your patients, what do you feel like have been the strategies that have worked best for you clinically? Because as a researcher, I can look at the data and say, yes, you need to, we need to increase hearing aid use in kids, but it's a bit presumptuous for me to go into a clinic and tell someone, well, this is how you should do it. And so it really is a partnership. And I think that stems from the fact that so many of us who were involved in the project had careers as clinicians prior to the to the study that we really, we feel like that's influenced us pretty considerably in terms of how we approach that question. Yeah, yeah that's a great insight into, into that process. And I think it's really helpful. I, I think I'm fortunate that I'm in a university setting and I'm around researchers all the time, but I, I have to imagine that a lot of clinical audiologists don't have a really close up look at, you know, how research is conducted. And so there sometimes can feel like that disconnect between what I'm doing every day clinically versus what they're doing in a lab kind of basis. So I think it's awesome that you guys approach it that way. I'm so appreciative that your team puts out the resources as like posters. Is that the best way to describe those that that are on your website? Yeah, we call those infographics. And I don't know that that's even the right terminology for them, but we really feel like presenting the research that way is is making it accessible to different audiences. So you'll notice we have some for parents, we have some for audiologists, we have some for early intervention providers, and th- and that's great feedback for us because I that's that's definitely our goal. Yeah, it's extremely helpful to be able to show that to a family or to show that to a clinician. It's it's short and it's sweet and it's got great visuals. I'm just very grateful for those. I don't know too many studies that like put out like a, a, a simplified infographic of the results. It's a it's a really, really great concept and I'm very appreciative. I hope you guys keep doing that. So when you think of the OCHL study, the OSAT study and the complex listening study, compared to when you were practicing clinically, what do you feel like have been some of the biggest revelations or biggest shifts in your clinical thinking or clinical understanding that have come with each of those? And I know that's kind of a big question because I'm asking for like the three different studies, but if you've got a couple from OCHL or OSAT or complex listening. Yeah, I think the biggest one from OCHL was just how important amplification is for kids with milder degrees of hearing loss. I think when I started out as a clinician, there was a lot of what we call in the research world clinical equipoise about fitting kids with mild bilateral hearing loss with hearing aids. And I was just absolutely blown away by how these children who had mild bilateral hearing loss were experiencing, in some cases, deficits that were greater than the children with moderate degrees of loss. That was very surprising to me. And a a finding that extended from the earliest outcomes that we looked at all the way into the academic outcomes for the kids. So, and, And that really was a huge sea change for me because I think I sort of had this, this sort of ambivalence about mild hearing loss uh, as a clinician. And, and, and now I, I'm like a crusader against mild hearing loss. <laughs> the, the other thing that I think is it really shifted my thought process is we don't often think about the importance of hearing aids in, in all kinds of different listening situations. And we really consistently found that I think it, maybe it comes from the adult 
hearing aid research where we, we are trained not to tell people that hearing aids are going to help them to hear in background noise. But what's interesting is if you look at the kids who do really well in background noise, they're the kids who have the best audibility through their hearing aids. And so I, I think we don't want to overstate the fact that kids who are deaf and hard of hearing who use hearing aids are still going to have difficulty in background noise relative to their peers with normal hearing. Like that sure is still true. But if you want to give that child who's deaf or hard of hearing the best possible outcome that they can, you want to fit those hearing aids to have the best audibility possible and give that child the best chance that they have because there are children who are performing extremely well in background noise with their hearing aids. And the common theme is that they all have good access through their hearing aids. That's something that for whatever reason, as a clinician, I you know, to me, I always remembered, oh, they're just not going to perform as well as their peers with normal hearing. But if you look at the kids who are performing the best, they have the best access. And that's, it makes sense. But I think for some reason, I always got hung up on that old statement that hearing aids aren't going to help as much in background noise. And we need to focus on remote microphones. And and I still believe that, but, but I do think we need to maybe change how we talk to families about it, because there are definitely situations where a remote microphone is not a plausible communication option. And we want to give kids the best access we can and get the best audibility is the way to do that. Yeah. That's a really, really valuable insight. I correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like I might've read a study that was looking at early intervention with hearing aids as a predictor for performance and background noise. And it was something about like, cause I think it makes sense that, you know, the earlier that we can stimulate whatever pathways our brain is doing to perform better in noise rather than being fit later with hearing aids with mild bilateral hearing loss. Does that make any sense? Have you heard of, do you know the study I'm talking about or am I just making this up? I might just be. (laughs) That's what you just described is there are several studies now, including studies that we ourselves have been involved in that show this pattern. So the way that I think about this is that having good audibility through your hearing aid is really important so that you can hear what you're trying to listen to. And we call that sort of the instantaneous effect of audibility. But the underrated factor and the one that came out of the outcomes of children with hearing loss study and the subsequent studies is that wearing your hearing aid consistently and getting good audibility also has a cumulative effect on the cognitive and linguistic skills that help you to listen in background noise. So in addition to getting a benefit to just being able to hear better, you also are developing the working memory, executive function, and language skills that listeners use when they're listening to degraded speech. So if you're another way to look at it is if you're a child who has limited auditory access, you're not only going to struggle in your environments, but the compensatory skills that you're going to have are also going to be affected. That's been a fascinating effect because I think we've understood the instantaneous effect of good audibility for a long time, but that we we haven't always been able to put our finger on this cumulative effect. And that's what a lot of our most recent research is focused on. Wow. Wow. Okay. So yeah, thank you for <laughs> making me not feel crazy, but I, I swear I'd read something about that. Okay, cool, cool. Okay. So then with the OSAT study, is, is there any particular finding that's really struck you as maybe something you didn't expect, or maybe you did expect it, but it was really cool to see the data support that hypothesis? Yeah. I mean, I think the coolest thing is that hearing aids help with academic outcomes as well. So when we looked at things like writing and math, I was 
I had always thought, you know, it, we're doing a lot to help these kids in terms of their language ability, but to see the downstream impact on academic topics was just like very important for me. Like it, it pulled the whole thing together. And now that I've worked with all these really smart language scientists, I understand the, the mechanism behind that. But I guess as an audiologist, I didn't really put two and two together in terms of how the language piece really informs the academics and, you know, the hearing aid ties in with that and being able to make that link has been very cool. That's awesome. That's awesome. And yeah, just to have that direct evidence that supports something like that too is really helpful. And I love the crossover too into education that you guys must be doing. I'm curious how, I mean, I guess the OCHL study probably had a little bit of educator involvement, but by the time you get to the OSAT study, I mean, are you guys directly involved with teachers of some of these children or like how did how was that shaped because there's a lot more professionals in their lives by the time they hit elementary school age yeah absolutely we love having teachers involved in our research and we try to get them involved whenever we possibly can there are some school districts that really limit the ability for their faculty or staff to be involved in research outside of the school. And part of the reason is that schools just get inundated with research requests from everywhere. Oh, wow. And so we really tried to incentivize participation from the teachers, but we ended up going into over a hundred classrooms and had the support of the schools to do that and measure classroom acoustics for the kids who were in our study. And You know, we wouldn't have been able to do that without support from the teachers and and their perspectives are really interesting. And often they're used to seeing these kids in very different listening environments than the parents. And that doesn't mean that it's more valuable than the the parents perspective, because I, I still believe that parents have the best sort of impression of their child's ability to hear. But teachers see them in social situations that are very interesting, as well as like very poor acoustics. And so on some level, the teacher's experiences are very, very unique. And I think an important thing to characterize for kids who are spending sometimes more time in school than they are at home awake. So I think, you know, having that perspective is is really important. And I commend the teachers that collaborated with us because we wouldn't have been able to do this work without them. That's really cool. Yeah, my wife's a first grade teacher and I'm I was like, I don't think she's ever involved in any research before, but that's that's cool. You guys had to establish a system to do it. But I totally agree. I think it makes total sense. You have to understand what their listening is like in those environments to really get a sense of the impact of their hearing loss. So that's that's a really cool insight into that too. And to have so many involved, that's crazy. I mean, that's probably really helpful, but I can't imagine. Again, I, my mind keeps going back to how much data you all have collected over these years. And I'm like, I literally can't picture this spreadsheet. Like it makes my brain hurt. It makes my brain hurt too, if that makes you feel better. <laughs> and you can actually see it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. And then how about the complex listening study? Anything, you know, that particularly jumps out at you from that one? Yeah, I think... So complex listening is still ongoing now. And and one of the things that we're really trying to establish is why we continue to use sort of one prescriptive approach for every child. So as I mentioned earlier, as audiologists are fond of saying, well, we don't expect kids who have the same audiogram to always have the same outcomes. And yet when we go to fit the hearing aid, we put their audiogram into the system and give specific prescriptive targets that are based on the audiogram and don't vary across individuals. 
And so the, one of the new directions that we're taking in the complex listening grant is trying to figure out what are the different factors that create individual differences in responses to hearing aids? And might there be a way for us to better customize a child's amplification characteristics to the specific type of hearing loss that they have or to their cognitive and linguistic abilities. So the complex listening grant has really evolved from sort of documenting these outcomes to a more experimental phase. And we're finding some really interesting individual differences in terms of how children are using a listening strategy that differs from their peers and how we might be able to incorporate that into amplification. And I think that's just really cool because I'm hoping it will eventually lead to the ability to sort of do a test with a child with their hearing aid on where you could then make modifications that would improve their perception individually, which I think would be really cool. This, I mean, this sounds extremely interesting. I also work with cochlear implants. I'm I'm thinking, I'm picturing like how, you know, some research has looked at rate changes in cochlear implant mapping per patient to see whether it's speech and noise understanding or just word recognition. When you say making changes in programming, do you mean like on like a gain level or more like on a like sound processing level or what what kind of changes do you mean there? That analogy about cochlear implant processing is so appropriate, I think, because, you know, when you go to map a cochlear implant, you don't just take into account their um, NRT responses and set them with the same responses for everybody. You really do a lot of individual tuning, but with hearing aids, we don't do that. And, and I think part of it is that in cochlear implants, you realize that there's so many variables related to how the implant's interfacing with the cochlea and how the neural survival is there. Sure. And there's just a lot of really great data out there on that that we don't presently have for kids who wear hearing aids. And, and so some of the ideas that we have are that you could, care, you could change the frequency response. So we're doing these experiments right now looking at what are called band importance functions, which are the sole, the sole basis of the speech intelligibility index. But if you look at an individual band importance function for a child, different kids are going to put different amounts of weighting on different frequencies. And so if you have a child who isn't putting a lot of weighting into a specific frequency band, just like in cochlear implants, or if you have a child who's not responding to a specific electrode, you might modify the frequency response of that hearing aid fitting in response to that piece of information. The other thing that I think we can modify is things like amplitude compression and compression speed to help. If we know that children, for example, have difficulties with spectral resolution, we might not fit them with a very aggressive compression scheme that is known to distort spectral cues, for example. So there's just, I think, a lot of uncharted territory here in terms of how we might individualize amplification for kids to sort of better suit their listening needs. Absolutely. I mean, this is, I feel like it's crazy to me. I mean, I don't know if this kind of research has been done with adults, but I haven't heard of approaching hearing aids in this way before. And I think it's really cool, you know, from a cochlear implant perspective, it, it has, it has always been kind of crazy to me that I can see my pediatric patient. I can run an RCD, we can do real ear. And it's like, 
you're good to go. Like <laughs> we'll check, we'll check and make sure, you know, your outcomes are going well. But when it comes to a cochlear implant mapping, there's a billion different factors I have to include in that programming session. And I do think, you know, hearing aids have a lot of complexity in the technology that we oftentimes don't manipulate in any way. And it's because I don't know what it would change, you know? So I think this research is going to be really, really cool. That's awesome that these are some of the things you're exploring. Yeah, thanks. I, I mean, I think there are a lot of people thinking in this way about hearing aids, but like you said, it's it's complicated. And I think cochlear implants have ended up there essentially by necessity because your cochlear implant patients wouldn't use a device if we used a very standardized approach, right? They wouldn't be able to sure. wear it. But I think there's lots and lots of interesting things that we can do with the frequency response. And that's what the complex listening grant is really trying to dig into right now is what can we do and what factors are important and what factors can we just say we don't need to deal with that because sometimes knowing what doesn't affect it is just as useful for clinicians because then you don't have to worry about doing a test, for example, that doesn't give you additional information. Sure, sure. So is the complex listening, I'm assuming, so that doesn't sound like it's the same thing as fast track, which is looking at mild bilateral sensory neural hearing loss specifically? Yes. So the Fast Track project grew out of both OCHL and the OSACH studies because we were finding that these kids with mild bilateral hearing loss were falling way behind their peers with even greater degrees of hearing loss across the board in language, academic outcomes, and a lot of different things. So we we developed Fast Track because NIH has a special funding mechanism that allows you to develop clinical tools. And so sometimes you get a research grant and you're just asking very basic science questions. But with Fast Track, we wanted to develop tests that clinicians could use that would allow us to better characterize mild bilateral hearing loss. So one of the big challenges with diagnosing mild hearing loss during childhood is that when we identify these children as babies, we take these tiny insert earphones and put them in their ear canals. And those insert earphones are calibrated in a 2cc coupler, which has a much larger volume than that baby's ear canal. So we put the sound in there, and it's a lot louder than it is in the 2cc coupler. And what that means is that that little baby is getting a huge advantage on their hearing test that will go away as they get older and their ear canal grows, and that coupling with that insert earphone changes. And what happens with kids with mild bilateral hearing loss is they might look like they have normal hearing early on if we don't take into account their ear canal acoustics. So the first step of the fast track project is to basically figure out a way to calibrate audiometric testing to the ear canal the same way that we do for otoacoustic emissions. So we already have a method of doing this, but we just have never applied it to the hearing test side of things. And and fast track is trying to do that as well. The other thing that when you put a microphone in the ear canal to measure the the response during the test, you can also measure the child's self-generated noise level. So we also know that kids with mild bilateral hearing loss can sometimes cover up their own thresholds by just making noise during the test. And all children that we test do this. Um, It's just sort of an attentional thing and, and pediatric audiologists are well aware of it. But the problem is when you're an audiologist, you don't really always know if the sound that you're presenting near threshold is being covered up by the noise that the child is making. 
So the other aspect of fast track that we're taking advantage of by having that microphone in the ear canal is to know what the noise level is in the ear canal while we're testing the child's audiogram. And we think both of those two things together are going to drastically improve the sort of sensitivity and diagnosis of mild bilateral hearing loss because you're taking into account the ear canal acoustics as well as the fact that this child might be masking their own thresholds. And we think that those two things are going to hopefully improve the diagnosis of mild bilateral hearing loss and give audiologists a better sense of when a child has mild bilateral hearing loss and when they might just not be paying attention during a hearing test. <laughs> I mean, that's that's amazing. That sounds totally necessary. I've never even thought about that coupler difference when doing a test with inserts. I mean, that's crazy. And and I also love that you're going to have some kind of a, a measure for <laughs> their self-noise as well. This is really cool. I'm assuming you all are in the early stages of this project if you don't have any any cool things to share with us just yet. Yeah, so we have been working on Fast Track now for about 18 months. It was funded in the summer of uh, 2020, which was like potentially the worst time to start a research grant during the <laughs> pandemic. But I'll tell you, we spent that first year before we could start collecting data, really refining the hardware and really trying to figure out what's something that we can do that will be accurate and that will... And so we spent a lot of time in software development, in hardware development with our engineers that we have on the project. And I think in some ways it was really beneficial because we didn't have a lot of opportunity to start collecting data, which we would normally be in a huge hurry to do. And it forced us to really nail down and and dial in the, the signal processing and the hardware. And now I think we have a better product. So we've been collecting data since this summer. And we, we're excited to report that having that characterized ear canal is really important, even for we're, we're starting this testing with four and five-year-olds. And we're, we're seeing big differences. So it does seem to matter. And it does seem to be clinically significant. And it's always blown me away that as audiologists, we care so much about making sure that the hearing aid output in the child's ear canal isn't over amplifying them because we know that their ear canals are smaller, but we don't often extend that thinking to when we test their thresholds with inserts, even though the railer to coupler difference for those two situations is the same. And Susan Scully and Richard Seawald published a paper 20 years ago that highlighted this problem. The only issue is we didn't have a great way to sort of correct the audiogram. Sure. And and now we have the unaided speech intelligibility index that allows us to look at not only the ear canal acoustics, but then how much of are those thresholds going to impact the child's access to speech, which is sort of a critical, you know, missing component. So um, just really exciting times, hoping that this will help to improve diagnosis, but we're going to actually put it to the test because the second half of this fast track grant actually involves sending the tests that we've developed out into clinical settings to get tested by real audiologists. So, you know, you can have really awesome ideas as a researcher, but if the audiologists tell us that this is a terrible idea, then we will, <laughs> you know, find a different way to do it. But it's cool because you, we're really going to be put to the test by the clinical partners that we have on that grant. That's awesome. That's I'm so, so excited to see what comes out of this study. I think this is going to be just like all of the work you all have been doing. It's just like 
every it seems like every piece of data that's published is just like really impacting the way that we practice. And I'm really grateful for your work. I I asked a previous guest who was a research audiologist this question. I'm just curious to kind of close this out here. I mean, it sounds like you get to work on projects that you're really passionate about. But if you had like a you know, endless budget, answer this kind of research question project that you could work on. Is there really, is there something out there that you're hoping one day that you could really, you know, hone in your research on? Or do you feel like you're kind of already getting there with what's happening with Fast Track? Oh, no, I have lots of ideas and wish lists for research. <laughs> but if I had to put my finger on one that would be technically challenging, but would also be so worthwhile, um, it would be to do a research study similar to the OCHL study, but where we were able to recruit children who had additional disabilities, as well as children from linguistically diverse and underrepresented backgrounds. So as you probably know, the OCHL study was awesome and it was a landmark study, but that group of kids that participated in that study were not at all like the kids that you see in your clinic. You know, many of the children that we see in audiology clinics have additional disabilities. Many of them come from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. And all of the kids in OCHL came from homes where English was the primary spoken language. And so what would what I would love to do is do a study like that, but like bring in experts in linguistic diversity, in sort of neurodiversity, and really try to do the same kind of work, but looking at children from these groups that don't typically get represented in research studies. And I just think if you gave me an unlimited budget, I would get in an RV and go drive around the US and (laughs) meet these families where they are and really try to look at this because I think that group is totally underserved in our research. And what that means is then clinicians who see these kids every day have questions about how they can help them. And, and I don't know that we're moving towards answers. And, and I'd, I'd really like to do something like that. I think if, if you were going to make me pick one, that would be it. That's great. I, I think that that's, I know that funding is not an easy process, but I think that's a really fantastic idea. And I can see that it would take a lot of professionals to complete something like that, but I think that's really valuable. And, you know, maybe there's some random angel research investor out there listening to this right now and they're going to have to contact you. (laughs) But if not, I'm really hoping that, you know, that that becomes a reality one day because that would be extremely, extremely valuable research and information for clinicians in a lot of different disciplines. So I I really hope that we can make that happen for you. And just, I want to thank you. This has been awesome. This is a dream come true to be able to interview you here. And I'm curious if people wanted to reach out, if they have questions about your study or about Fast Track, or they want to get their hands on some of those resources, what's the best way to reach you? So I am all over the place on the internet. So you can go to my Twitter handle is Ryan W. McCreary, and I am active on Twitter. Um, I also have a a website that's just ryan-mccreary.org. Um, That includes all of our publications and research for anyone to access. The beauty of having NIH funding is that the expectation is that we make our research available to anyone who's interested. So that's a good website. And then my lab has a a Facebook page where we often post announcements about participating in research or the latest study that we published. And, And the lab's called the Audibility Perception and Cognition Laboratory or the APC Lab at Boystown. And you can Uh, find us on Facebook and hopefully 
stay up to date depending on whatever your preferred social media channel is. So we haven't started into TikTok or YouTube yet. Um, <laughs> it's only a matter of time. I know. I <laughs> Most of the... I, I, I'm not a good dancer, so TikTok might be off the table, but... Um, if you guys can start disseminating your infographics into TikToks, I am I am there. I'm okay, definitely challenge gonna... <laughs> accepted. We'll see what we can do. And, and, you know, if it's terrible, we just won't make too many TikToks. How's that sound? <laughs> yeah, there's enough content out there. It'll get lost in the shuffle. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Ryan, thank you again so much for joining me. This has been great. We'd be happy to have you anytime in the future. If you guys have some some major new uh, stuff to share, we'd be happy to talk again. But thank you so much again for joining me. Thank you, Dakota. This has been awesome. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and rating. This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to speechtherapypd.com slash ear. That's speechtherapypd.com slash E-A-R.